0: you got fucking hours and your whole call sign's going to be dead. So you either get someone in here or get us out of here.
1: Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The only thing I was scared of was failing. with letting down the people there that I was supposed to support. Things went south really bad. You've got to have... An element of crazy to be good at what we do. There was an ego
0: attached to being a gunfighter.
1: Being around big, tall trees, thick shrubbery, potentially him to other moments time. in his life during battle. It's not easy to get out and walk in a minefield, not knowing when your legs are going to get blown off. You know you're a part of fight. The story of transformation is powerful. H is a former Senior Special Forces soldier. With a protected identity. He's a 24-year army veteran, a warrant officer class one, formerly of the 2nd Commando Regiment. He was thrice decorated for conspicuous service and valor. I spoke with H in season three, in a special three-part conversation. In number fifty-four, H Volume 1, we covered H joining the military, Somalia, becoming a commando, Timor, and Tactical Assault Group, East. It's
0: we're going through that door. Or we're sliding down that rope, or we're blowing this, or we're diving in here, or flying in there, or whatever. And this is it. And doesn't matter how many of us come out.
1: In volume two, we detailed some of H's significant combat experiences in his first deployment to Afghanistan in 2006.
0: Only seconds ago, braced yourself mentally that you know you're about to die. You've accepted that.
1: Then, in volume three, we talked about H's headspace after that 2006 deployment and jumped ahead to reflect more generally on the toll years of service at the tip of the spear can have.
0: There's nothing else in this world ever that will replace when you live and breathe inside a special operations team. There's nothing.
1: I brought H back on the show this year as he had so many more deployment experiences to share. In this episode, Volume 4, H shares some stories from his 2008 deployment to Afghanistan. H, welcome back to Life on the Line.
0: G'day Alex, great to be back.
1: H, we talked at length previously about your first Afghanistan deployment in 2006 and your difficult transition home after. Once you got back and started to adjust to life back home, tell me more about the period between when you came home and your next deployment, the training involved and your ongoing mindset.
0: Yeah, I think it was a period where I did a lot of deep reflection upon the training up until Afghanistan and what was most relevant and worthy for want of a better term. And then um, obviously those, those thoughts or that analysis then transitioned into how to best affect our current training that we were doing to become more suitable, and more realistic and more effective with our combat operations in Afghanistan. And there certainly was, to note, a delta as in a, a large difference. Sorry, not a large difference. There was a difference. I definitely recall that.
1: You told me last time after the 2006 deployment that you felt some validation, having proven yourself to yourself and your brothers to your left and right, what you were capable of. Having had that experience, having tested yourself in that ultimate sandbox, had you had enough or did you want to go back?
0: Oh, no, I certainly had not had enough. Combat for true warriors is a drug, Having said that, I've met a lot of warriors that have been in significant combat, but they do not have the fixation to have more. In fact, you know, near misses and quite intense conflicts can uh, have a life-changing, irreversible effect on people. So, from my experiences, I found that people after they get the first, you know, real intense operational mission or incident. Yeah, because getting shot at from a you know, a distance away or shooting it's, it's you know not really what I'm talking about I'm, I'm really talking about the sort of the closer combat and the near misses and the intense firefights that can happen in and around compounds uh, specifically that they, they do happen out in the open areas but from my experiences uh, you know the intensity is you know when people are meters away and decisions are made in nanoseconds of what you need to do and how you need to affect it and in fact most of the time and I think I've said this in an earlier cast that the body the muscle reflexes are in fact moving well before decisions are made and that is the training kicking kicking in but back more in line with the specific question you know you'd had a taste I'd had some minor tasters taste of um, you know combat operations but not to this intensity certainly you know previously most of closer friends that I held near were of the same mindset and this is where the unit really started to spin up combat is a drug like I said to most of us types it's extremely addictive you know get to a stage where you want for nothing less and you can't see or feel much more coming home is just a means to get back over there
1: well, you're back home and you are craving more of that drug. You are absolutely hooked on it and you get to satiate that addiction again in 2008 in your second deployment to Afghanistan.
0: Your 2008 deployment was an odd deployment, but also an extremely fortunate one that I, and I certainly did shape it uh, to the extreme right end of the spectrum. But it eventuated, I was sent over to one commando regiment as the Sergeant Major to specifically prepare one commando company, but in reality it was you know, most of the uh, unit being reserves and due to their readiness and skill base at that time. So after spending several months with a lot of hard work in uh, developing them and in the administration uh, inside that unit was also sort of a little bit laggy. The skills were still catching up to us and the alignment of um, of you know our, our job specifications. So there, there, were, there were a lot of issues that I was, you know, working on hard to get them not to speed at that time. When it came down to their deployment, which was right towards the end of the year, I was told that I'd be going back to um, TAG East as the first commando sergeant major of the tactical assault group. Previous to this time, it was an appointment only held by SSR personnel. So I was to be the first. And I was, you know, sort of groomed and supported and mentored accordingly. So how it eventuated the, uh, the then CO of one commander regiment, we just had a frank discussion because basically it boiled down to, a you can work your ass off all year and then you're not going to deploy. And basically that did not sit well with me. So if I was training them or training with them for them and doing all the work to get one commando regiment into a uh, winter rotation, which was the sort of thing that they'd set up then because it was a lot less intense activity. It was a reduced activity period in regards to the the threat and intensity of operations. One, because their ability to conduct operations through the winter, you know, through the weather, et cetera, was, you know, hindered. So therefore our operations uh, were also not only hindered, but the operations were less, there was less pickings. Put that way.
1: Well, it's um, not their fighting season, is it? In winter, it's the summer's the fighting season over there for the Taliban.
0: Exactly, and that bloody good valid point, Alex. You know, hence the name fighting season. It's the opposite. So I um, struck a deal. It was nothing short of with um, the CO, and that was if I'm not going to go, change me over now. So put in another sergeant major who uh, they agreed to and who I recommended. So he did a bit of poking around and that was my way of getting back as in I basically wrote myself out of a job as a sergeant major for the rest of the year because I wasn't going to deploy with them and that also got me back overseas. So he came back to me and said, look, there's a counterinsurgency position in Iraq, you might be there for a little while and then it might go across to Afghanistan. I was like, okay, let's pull the trigger on that and just see what happens. Confident in my own ability to make shit happen (laughs) in inverted commas. And that's how that will eventuate. And so then I ended up deploying, maybe it was about July or something, went into Iraq and uh, linked up with a team there. Our training commitment there was dwindling down uh, massively. And we, By the time I deployed, we'd made the decision that it would be there a few weeks, having a look at what they were doing with counterinsurgency, and then take that uh, across to Afghanistan.
1: And what happened next for you there?
0: Funny enough, I went into a uh, relatively benign position, which was a um, head tactical advisor at the counterinsurgency school at a little camp called Julian outside of Kabul. When I saw an opening, I basically put a proposal to him that, hey, I think how I'm best suited. (laughs) And this was totally totally me digging and running, you know, my own little agendas of just doing what I really wanted to do, which was fight, you know, with as many people in many different
1: scenarios as possible. You have that addiction and you're not going to satiate it by teaching in a school environment, essentially. You need to be back out there.
0: Exactly. Exactly. So right from the get-go, I was given very very little direction i was given very very little supervision and i mean this in a good way because i can't thank him enough so i just started reaching out to a lot of people i knew uh, from different exchanges all over the world i basically and I set up a new Hotmail account. I did everything Hotmail. There was no. I, I used no classified systems. I used no classified phone, no Gucci communications. Through a cell phone I bought in country, through a laptop I bought on the black market because I didn't want any of you know, my own stuff. And then uh, I just set up a Hotmail account, and I just started emailing every single person I knew and ever met. And from that, what happened was I got real, real busy. For the three weeks of a month, I would be out with numerous different units, which I'll go through in a minute, conducting operations with them of all sorts. And then I would come back. And then one of my key jobs in that week long thing was to just guide conversations with the reality of what's happening on the ground. And I would also give a presentation on um, counterinsurgency combat effects or something like this. You know, basically, what's the reality of our uh, theories and what's happening on the ground, and just cite what some units are doing well. If they're doing something particularly bad, I would also do that. I'd generally just leave, leave the unit or the country out of it because it wasn't about that. It was just using those examples. So this set me up for a absolute ball-tearing deployment, to be honest with you. You know, I worked a lot with the um, ODA teams at different posts. I worked a lot with some Marsoff who were tied in with the Afghan commandos. I worked with the Italian Special Forces out at Herat, which is out in the RC West, is in the Western Afghanistan. I worked with the Italian Special Forces out in the Western Afghanistan. I worked with the German Special Forces up at mazar sharif Northern Afghanistan. You know, I worked with some Canadian Special Forces out of Kabul, basically any special forces in country other than the the tier one jsoc elements which you can't walk into but i still had a good liaison an intel formally you know i jacked up gigs with them and i'd fly up there and uh conduct whatever operations you know they had uh lined up and uh and away we would go and to an extent where I, I still keep in contact with a few of them now and they still you know years later when we'd meet up in vegas or wherever they still look at me and sort of wonder how and what i did all of what i did and, I'll tell a story, um, a couple of stories straight up if you like, but the first time I went out and... (laughs) This is, this, I won't mention it by name, but there's a current serving general in SOCOM who can, who can 100% back this story. I went out to a little, I can't even remember the name of the bloody base or the province, but it was somewhere out in, um, in Kandahar in some pretty bad lands. I'd already done the research, but I had no contact there. So there's a real hot spot there. And these guys I was reading were getting in lots of you know fights, lots of ticks, and there's a bit of an issue there with a few key Taliban leaders. I couldn't justify how to get out there. So what I found in um, some of the development they were doing with counter-surgency, because there was a lot of very vanilla stuff happening, which was required, but frankly I wasn't interested in. And one of them was they were trying to teach them how to, chicken farm at this location they'd just taken a heap of chickens and some people to help them farm chickens because you know i know it sounds funny to everybody else but the afghans aren't good at breeding you know stock to then you know they eat that and then you know have more on the way sort of like the rest of the western world does it was kind of like kill it eat it and go what now so they're trying to teach them that you know hey if you farm chickens you know you can have life support there and food I flew into this base. That took me a day or two because I had to get a, another helicopter and bum rides on different countries' assets from, um, from some other base somewhere. Anyway, I, uh, I rolled in there, <laughs> sort of checked into these people who were expecting me, and then um, simply walked out the other back door and started poking around this base until I found resemblance of what would be a soft camp, which, you know, for my eye, wasn't that hard, and then um, just waited for someone to walk out that door and walked in the door. I said, day, mate, to a few people like I own the place. I walked all the way into the TOC unchallenged. That's and
1: slightly worrying. And uh,
0: they were just having a briefing on um, 10 days of intense strikes coming up that were fully enabled. So they had like 20 or 30 target packs like sitting on the table. They'd all been um, lit, a couple of uh, Apaches, a couple of Blackhawks and a couple of Chinooks. So they had a dedicated air pack coming in that would enable like 10 nights of non-stop hitting these guys at multiple targets every night. So they're in the middle of, like, discussing this, all this, you know, the senior team leaders are in there and, you know, the intel people and that. And i I've just walked in the door and they take a look at me. and said, excuse me, who are you? I said, I'm H. They said, right. I said, you weren't expecting me. I said, I'm here to help you and get some uh, counter-inspiracy atmospherics for the school in uh, Kabul. So if you just continue along with your brief and uh, I'll have a chat with you afterwards. Sort of weird look went around the room, and some sideways glances, and fucking shoulder shrugging, and they just kept talking. And then what unfolded from that was some of the uh, absolute amazing uh, combat operations I did. You know, some of the um, still now some of the best friendships uh, you know I have. So that, that's no shit. That's how that started. We got in that much shit, as in the shit fights were that intense, to the extent where the commander of ISAF uh, Soth, he flew out to uh, see what was going on. Now, I'd left, so this was post those 10 days. And at the time, he was an Australian. His name's uh, Rick Burr, he, he was one of our generals. He's come out to uh, see what's happening, you know, firsthand, to get a brief and everything of all these operations that were conducted by the commanders on the ground. And um, he's walked into the TOC, um, obviously in an Australian uniform, and um, they're going, oh, excellent, sir. We didn't know you were Australian. I said, just had H out here, one of your boys. And he's like, who? He's going, H. So he's got on the phone to the task force commander and he's gone, do you know this fucking H guy of which he's kind of scratched his head and said, yes, he's gone. Well, I've just come out and um, he's been out here conducting operations. No one seems to know about them. Um, <laughs> who's authorised this and who's he working for? And he was okay about it, but no one knew like really what I was doing. And that wasn't in traditional sense, properly authorised or, you know, waved for some wand from above. So, yeah, a couple of weeks later, I was running through uh, Kandahar where the TF66 boss was, and he was like, oh, can I have a minute? I basically got summoned to see him <laughs> to, to do a please explain. And he goes, uh, how are you going? I was like, yeah, yeah, good, good. He goes, what do you have to? I'm like, oh, not much, just passing through, which was just another lie uh, as I was about to go and do some jobs with some Canadians. And he goes, right, so you're having a good trip? And I said, yeah, I'm just up there. We're doing a lot of study, a lot of teaching, counterinsurgency. you know, it's pretty boring. He goes, that's funny. The commander of uh, ISAF Soft was in here the other day, Rick Burr. He said that there's this guy being out in the RC with the uh, Afghan commandos, the Marine Special Operations and the ODAs uh, for 10 days supplementing their operations. And, you know, basically, was a bit of a force multiplier out there. And they were wondering if we can get more guys out there, more Aussies. Like, where are the Aussies coming to help? And uh, it's sort of, you know, i got a bit of a kick in the ass over it, but nothing really happened.
1: Well, at least you got a kick in the ass for doing the job well rather than just going rogue and messing things up. And although a lot of these ops you're doing aren't one way from up high, as you said, and on official authorization, there's still some sensitivities and discretions we have to take as we talk about them. But H I wanna hand the floor back over to you and just hear about some of these ops you've been on and some of the most ball tearing combat operations you saw. The biggest one that we did on that particular stint, there was a
0: about a dozen Afghan police that had been taken hostage we'd found out through obviously intelligence as to where they were Um, they'd been there a few weeks they were in a like a cramped room it was kind of like it was uh, you know underneath a compound but it wasn't it's a bit hard to explain and we were on goggles at the time and everything else we went to recover them, which was definitely a feel-good mission, but also quite shocking as in they'd been in this cramped space. They had them in metal shackles around their ankles and wrists like you'd see in some barbaric movie, practically on top of each other in there for I don't know how long. So getting them out of there and removing the shackles, frankly, are covered in piss, shit and blood. They were all very weak, so you literally you know, were calling in and pulling them out. You know, we finally got him out and just the elation when you do recovery missions and you, and you know that you've 100% saved someone's life or a group of people's life that would have been dead in another couple of days. That was, you know, a feel-good mission, although I did have excessively long showers that night. But the uh, piece of resistance for that particular um, trip was we did like a faint one night and there was a HVI who was running the whole show in this region. And what we wanted to do was to, you know, flush him out and he was quite intelligent and yeah, they'd gone after him several times and they always had missed. So we did a feint. We flew all these helicopters in and we hit this compound that there was just some low-level bad guy in. But we knew the commander was in that area, as in we had that from intel. We could not, though, uh, specifically narrow him down at, uh, that night, which was no big deal. So we've done that, and what we did, when the helicopters took off, we left only half the force behind. That half, we went over to what we'd pre-identified to be a relatively strong compound that we could bunker down in. And we took over that compound, so we um, hit the compound, a couple of families in there, unfortunately, and we've just um, cuffed and um, silenced them and um, put them in a room and we just sort of you know, looked after them, as in humanitarianly, for the next... Uh, I think it was about three days or something. And then we started fortifying the compound and we just laid low in there for all of the next day. So the next day, because there was a lot, like hundreds, hundreds of Taliban in this area, and we got into quite a decent firefight that night, sort of getting out of there. Um, but then once they took off, so we just all slunk away and stopped shooting. So, you know, they, they thought we were gone, like I said. Yeah, so we hunkered down there in the first days in no one at all visible, nothing visible. Anyone riding past would just see a compound. But inside, there was about 25 or so of us, which might sound like a lot, but when things got hectic, it's kind of not. What happened was uh, the Taliban started to just move freely around that compound because we did another feint a little way away too because we knew that they would organise near us. And then when that happened, we basically attacked from the out of the compound. We didn't leave the compound and they then knew we were in there And then because we'd heavily fortified it and taken extra stores and stuff in there, we thought we'd be pretty well right for a few days, which we were. What ensued was, you know, essentially non-stop shooting <laughs> out of this compound for um, days, and days. these
1: just aren't discount Taliban soldiers either. Because of this high value individual you're pursuing, you guys are going to be dealing with more top tier level.
0: Yeah, we ran out of, like we had claymores around the compound. So there was that many that come in on a few occasions, the claymores were fired. We had three on different occasions, suicide bombers belt towards us on their motorbike, just trying to hit the compound door and blow us up. We ran out of grenades. Some weapons ran out of munitions for them. But, you know, snipers were just firing, you know, nonstop. I was doing a shift change on, on one of the guys. He had a uh, 300 Winchester Magnet. And um, me and him would just sit behind that front and take turns for an hour or so because you were just... And then we'd have to then give rifles and people a rest because the barrels were that hot. Um, and obviously on several occasions we called in CAS. But this is where the PR sort of went foul. There was a lot of... I don't know how else to describe it other than there was a ring of bodies around that compound. And then through the night and different occasions, if people were sifting around through there and had picked up weapons and stuff, so then how it looked when, because the Red Cross and a couple of other humanitarian agencies came in and filmed a heap of stuff um, and, it, you know, made it look like that, you know, basically anyone that moved towards that compound, we had shot because some of them, you know, days later might have had a weapon or that was picked up by someone else. And that's how the whole, the story ran into a negative light. But, you know, that was extremely intense fighting. Like I said, you know, a couple of times waves were literally you know, at the bottom of the compound and, you, you know, you're up on top of the compound wall leaning over, shooting people like directly below me trying to get into doors because you can't open a door and shoot them. And like I said, we'd ran out of grenades by then, throwing grenades out and off the uh, compound. But on the last morning, and I swear to God, there's several people that will back this up. This is dead true. This is where I was just like, Jesus Christ, like never, ever in my life have I seen a group of guys just go, you know what? And we just gave each other the nod. You talk about waving red flags at bulls. We had a information ops slash ops backpack up there with us. And what that is, it's essentially a big speaker. And through bloody iPod or whatever, you know, you've got pre-recordings that, you know, we would make and you're sending out messages. Well, we'd done that a few times and the messages are, you know, thought out by these information operations people and whatnot. Well, this one morning when we woke up, generally over night time it had quietened down a bit because they knew we had night superiority and they might try and do a few random things. But after the second or third night, there was either nothing or very limited activity. And, you know, I will admit we were getting pretty ratty by this stage. What they did the next morning was they joined all these sticks together. They found downstairs from some tree, as in downstairs inside the compound, one of those courtyards, you know, people would have seen in movies or whatever. And they've hoisted an American flag up on first light. This backpack speaker system bellows for like a kilometre across the valley. They played Born in the USA on repeat. I kid you not. We were going to try and get out of there that night, which we did, but basically what they did was antagonised the shit out of them. And anyone you know with half a brain and access to an AK-47 within like 10 kilometres, 20 kilometres or however far, probably further, got on their scooter and started heading towards our compound.
1: You're just asking for it.
0: <laughs> we were there for a fight. There's no doubt about it. But even me, I was kind of like, I wasn't anti the idea. I did ask, you know, JP and Crackers, the commanders. I was like, I thought I had just had that right smile look in my face and I mean, you know, this is going to go right. And they're like, yep. I and mean, we just called them in and like, you know, those in just before first light and I said, this is the plan, you know, is everyone good? And like, guys, guys are pulling mags out. I can't believe I've got three and a half mags and so we should be okay. You know, it was kind of like that. As in like, like, I honestly don't know whether we're going to have enough ammo to like, deal with what we're about to do yeah so I won't go into the details but you can kind of imagine what occurred for the daylight hours of that day as in wave wave of these guys and whatnot and we were just calling air in and everything and then by that night it was time to just wrap it up they couldn't get any air in to get us out so they had to, through that day they uh, designed or you know, got prepared another complete ground force element in the armoured bloody cars because that was the only thing they'd come in to get us with. And uh, the short of it is, yeah, I remember it being just after last light, or it might have been early hours, actually, I can't even be 100% positive. But um, they came in and got us out and that was the end of that. But that was certainly a very, very interesting time and a different, you know, because when you're static and people are coming towards you, like it can be good. And, you know, it cannot be because, you know, you're in, you're in a known position. So there is some initiative you've lost there, even though you might be well protected or what, you know, if they hurl enough, you know, like we had several injuries, as in gunshot wounds and shrapnel wounds from RPGs. Like it's kind of just an odds game that, you know, if they fire 50 RPGs into and at that compound, you know, there's a high chance that one of them is going to hit you or hit someone, which was the case. Probably not something I'd recommend for the kids out there, but um, (laughs) maybe a game you could play for a short period of time.
1: But you were riding that addiction high and it sounds to me like you were getting the dose you wanted and you didn't care how much this drug might negatively affect your body, to extend that analogy. You didn't care the risk to your own life or limb. You were just busy to throw yourself in there, take it all for it could be.
0: Yeah, definitely. not, Not in a suicidal sense, but your mindset, yeah, there was stages, you know, like in the earlier, earlier cast when we talked about the helicopter crash and I was like, hey, I'm going to die because I I had no control over the situation. There was no case in there where, you know, you, you may think about like, oh, sh- shit, that was close or wonder if I die tomorrow but you're not worrying about it. You're not
1: seeking self-harm. I didn't mean that.
0: And I know you didn't. I I just wanted to talk through that mindset though, Alex, because I know that's not what you meant. It's not a self-harm thing, but because I will say now when I look back at things, it's not deliberate self-harm. Definitely not. But you know, I know guys that have been shot and for that matter died in combat. And I'm like, they kind of knew that was going to (laughs) happen. So, you know, no, it's not deliberate self harm. But as time goes on, as you get more and more addicted to this drug, then you need to overlay with that, you know, your personality as well, because this isn't everybody. But you know, every team will have that guy or those couple of guys. Like that's kind of the ratio, and that will just run risks that are just way beyond what's required or what's expected. These guys later on, you know, might become VC winners or uh, Medal of Gallantry winners or whatever. Like when you look at some of the actions that some of our people have done, and I'm not referring to anyone in particular, but if you go back and read people's, you know, the narrative behind, like I said, Stars of Gallantry, VC, Medals of Gallantry, Medals of Valor, when you read those narratives and, you, you know, your jaw drops and your eyes are wide open, Well, you know what I mean? (laughs) You've got to have an element of crazy to be good at what we do. You know, you can't be, you know, a normal, sane person.
1: (laughs) You can't be in your own head too much.
0: Well, you're doing insane shit, right? Or you can do, and at times you are. So to me, it's not really a fine line. In fact, to me, you know, there's a bold line there and you're either on this side or that. You know, the fine line is, you know, the line we walk, live, breathe every day. The bold line is the line that guy, (laughs) in inverted commas, constantly is on the other side of because he's that guy. And like I said, there's one, two. God help us! In some teams, a few of them, and that, and then that becomes the crazy team, right? Because <laughs> they're always doing the maddest shit. It's just a product of, I think, the environment, a product of the personalities, and then you know, then you get the competitiveness in between, you know, the teams and personalities. Where, and this is where, you know, frankly, it does get dangerous, and I've seen it get dangerous. Where I see you do some crazy shit. Well, guess what? I'm going to do something even more crazy. We live and work in a environment where our reputation is fucking everything so the more bigger your reputation you know the more credibility respect you have the more you know support you may get and the more opportunities you may get etc you know
1: absolutely So H, is there another instance where either you're in that kind of high adrenaline, just focus on the action ball tearing kind of scenario, or is there another scenario in this deployment like the helicopter crash we talked about in a previous podcast where you had to take stock for a moment and just actually embrace the fact I might die or you even thought you were about to?
0: There's probably a few, to be honest. I'll tell a more vanilla story, but it's probably the mindset piece is important And that's why I'll tell this, it's not that, you know, exciting. But when I went up with the Germans, you know, they said, you know, are you qualified on a motorbike? Now, I'd ridden motorbikes around on farms and stuff. So, yeah, I can ride a motorbike. But they had like 400 or 600 cc Kawasaki's all decked out, the shit on them, you know, basically to run special ops on. And these guys were like, (laughs) you know, equivalent to our, you know, national enduro riders on. So me being me, and this is what I'm saying, there's a bit of mindset and a bit of ego here where, you know, you can be dangerous to yourself. And I remember them asking me, you know, saying, hey, well, we're going to do this tomorrow, you know, would you like to come along? And basically we're going to do, four of us were going out on these motorbikes, on this patrol, miles away from anything with no support, looking for this guy to get him. And that's why they wanted to use motorbikes and we're going to go cross country and, you know, 100 miles an hour on these tracks. And yeah, without hesitation, I've just gone. Yep, yeah, I'm good to go. Well, I tell you what, that next day, I don't know how many times I scared myself because I was trying to keep up with these guys, and these guys could ride like there was absolutely, you know, no tomorrow. And I remember getting back that night, just sort of flunking because I was exhausted as well. My body didn't have that fitness to be on the bike either. And I remember getting back there, you know, the German camps are great because, you know, you'd always have a few beers there. I mean, it's Germany, you know, so you have a few beers. They've got a hot tub in the special ops compound. <laughs> you know, they've got like the most best sausages in the world there. You know, so it's pretty cool. So you'd come back and you had that opportunity to chill out as a point I'm making, which is important, but in a lot of places you don't get. And I remember sitting there when I come back to the you know, before I went and sort of relaxed with the boys. Just, I remember looking at the ground, just going, like literally shaking my head at myself saying, that was fucking stupid. Yeah, look what you did today. Out of all the life risks, you know, I'd taken, it was like, why did you put yourself in such a silly position? Whereas you could have went with the other part of the team in a car. Yeah, but you had to be on the motorbike because it was, you know, more high speed. It was more dangerous. It was more this. It was more that. And that's where you have these subtle checks. Well, I did, you know, with myself. So you know, some inward scans. But to be honest, they're always too late or too little. When I look back retrospectively, so that's a case where, like I said, you're not getting shot at, but the environment and our mindset, the beast that we are, says yes to things that you know, frankly, are just damn right insane. Like, are just insane. Like, if someone asked me to do that now, there's just no way in the world because it will be like, I'll be dead. But then you're like, elderly. I'll come back to. Oh wait, there's probably another you know good story uh, to tell about a particular operation which has been noted in British folklore. And where I think it was the operation where I got another bronze star. Yeah, it was. But um, we can come back to that one a little bit later if you want.
1: Oh, we can jump to that in a sec. It's just interesting that you have identified there that the pressure, it's not just coming from when you're in a contact situation or an extended, any kind of high stress situation there, but you're just feeling that day-to-day pressure. And it's not even peer pressure from the team. The Germans then were not directly applying pressure to you to do that. You apply that from an internal source because you were looking externally and wanting to, I guess, compete and keep up. And it's even with relaxing a hot tub with some beer and breakfast, you're not getting enough time to recover and reset your mindset. It's just a constant snowball effect of adrenaline and tension. Mm.
0: And then there's a the reputation management as in, even though I'm operating on my own, you know, I'm an Australian commander. Yeah. You know, I need to make sure that when I leave there, that whoever I have like, come across in my path goes, fuck. That's Australian Commandos, man. They're they're like, you know, they're off the chart. You also have that constantly that you are proving yourself. This is what people don't understand. And and no offence to them, why would they? How could they? But, you know, when we're overseas, you talk about the Olympics and all these games, we're proving ourselves every single day, you know, in an international games. But the problem is losing is death.
1: Losing is death, but you're not just training for one opportunity every four years. You have had years of training but you are basically running or you're swimming the 800 meters or running the 200 sprint or whatever whatever day after day after day and the next olympics is next week
0: exactly another good um you know analogy within the analogy that i'm not training four years to do one 400 you know i'm training every day to do maybe 2400s at night i mean i don't know what my actual race is going to be so this is where our mindset you know, and I know we go on about it, but just trying to give people a bit better of an insight grasp on that is why we are the way we are. I don't even know what my event is. Imagine going to the Olympics and you've trained for a couple of years, but I don't know what event I'm going in yet. And I don't know when the next event is. So that level of mindset and preparedness, that's where the intensity comes from. Like the, we're, you know, we're literally ready for it. You're on your tippy toes. Yeah, it's eggshells. It's all of that because... You know, what is my event? You don't know until you're shot at, until that vehicle's IED'd, until this happens, until that happens, you know. And the event starts, you know, generally in a blaze of glory. (laughs) Even if you are going into somewhere and you're like on a deliberate action, you're going to go to this target. You know, you've got a really good target pack. The intel's solid, you know, so you have a rough idea of my event. (laughs) But, you know, as the uh, old saying goes in special forces, don't plan much past entry points.
1: Because you might turn up expecting you're doing the 400-meter breaststroke, but then yeah. you actually end up doing the shot put. Yeah. So expect, don't have your expectations set too firmly.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've done many operations, as, as as many others have, where it's like, hey, we're just, you know, the old classic old saying, and that's where you get, you know, a bit salty, I guess. Yeah, classic saying where, hey, we're just going to go and do this. Like, as soon as you say that to me, like in the early days, everyone's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then, once you've been around a bit, as soon as someone goes, "Hey, we'll just go and do this," they don't make fun of, but they certainly make the point in the movie Black Hawk Down, you know, about "Oh, don't worry about your chest plates, don't worry about your goggles." You know, we're just going out, and the lower tiered guys, and it's not a slant on the rangers at all, but let's just call them the less experienced at the time. You know, we're like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah," whereas the more experienced, better trained, were like, "There's shit you just don't do." <laughs> because they've already learned those lessons where these others are still in a learning phase. So, you yeah, know, it's a constant, constant development of self, of your own experiences, analysis of, you know, everything, you know, going around. And that's, that's where, you know, it gets to a stage where, you know, it's exhausting
1: because you're never not thinking. You can't not stop thinking of contingencies. Well, let's keep that mindset in the back of our minds as we listen to you tell us another story from your 2008 deployment.
0: An ex-22 squadron officer, as in uh, the UK Special Forces Unit 22 SAS, I'll just call him Joe. And Joe had been recently put in command of a new British unit, as in a unit they'd stood back up. I think that was called First Rifles, which was part of the commando group or something. Don't, don't quote me on any of that. I, I can't remember the specific details of how that tied in my boss knew joe through you know maybe some previous schooling or whatever I, I can't remember it doesn't matter but i remember coming back one time and he going hey joe and them about this major operation yeah they're in a, they're in a lot a lot of hurt out there there was one place in afghanistan where they'd called it to a traditional offensive or something so it's very very rare in counterinsurgency terms Because what it means, which is sort of counter insurgency, um, what it means is the insurgents, in this case, the Taliban and um, various other identities, had become more overt, as in they were more formed, they'd sort of dug in certain positions, you know, it was quite known where, you know, these compounds were that were theirs, etc. So rather than for people listening, these guys generally, you know, find and are very, very good at blending in. You know, and that's where the difficulty lies for us. They'll blend into these villages and communities as one of them. So what I'm talking about here is they were overtly walking around armed, informed groups, overtly had bases, et cetera, et cetera. And this is out in Kandahar. Yeah, you know, there have been several British fatalities in the last few weeks. There were a couple of bases that they could not get the Brits out of, as in out small outlying faults. So the situation had become quite dire. Now, what Joe was in charge with was a lot of KLEs, the key leader engagements with local influential Afghanis of what we're about to do and pave the way because basically the British wanted to put thousands of troops in there and we needed to sweep through this area. And when, if you look at a map or imagine a map, basically we had our left and right of arc, you know, with those uh, eastings or northings, depending which way we're going, you get the point. And we were basically to clear every compound, every nook and cranny down a corridor and then hold that corridor, which was a counterinsurgency methodology, that then we would the blot out from them. We'd slowly push out from that. So it's called ink blotting. Normally it's done in a circle. They wanted to do it laterally. So then you generally move out because it's easier to control and you have a safe area within. You know, to cut to the chase, for I think it was about two, three, four nights, it was a good few nights, you know, we were working almost all night, driving around inconspicuously to all these different places, having these dinners, a thousand cups of chai tea and and some, um, you know, stewed goat, and um, shaping the battlefield for what we're about to do in very much more of a traditional sense. So it's a big eye-opener for me, because certainly for Afghanistan, there's nothing like this happening. This was big military muscle movement, but of course... As we most of us know, in front of all those big military muscle movements, they there's this little thing called a bayonet, which is um, you know, a dozen special forces guys. So after they uh, worked out exactly what they were going to do, I got attached to some two three and two two SAS guys. Uh, two threes are territorial, so they're a lot reserve, a lot of ex guys and whatnot. And we were basically to start manoeuvring out and. More or less, you know, see what happened. There was no grand plan. They had all these grand plans that needed to manoeuvre such a quantity of troops in regards to the logistics, the uh, air assets, um, uh, assets above, but the air assets also to move and et cetera, et cetera. But for us, it was a matter of, you know, go and prod the uh, tiger and just see where it roars, eh? That's what we did no shit we had literally no plan whatsoever
1: so it's just you and a bunch of british sas guys going out to poke the bear and see what happens
0: yep and attached to us though we did have a gentleman who uh probably the only afghani guy that i was initially almost scared of just on our first meeting i didn't know much about him other than i got told don't worry about him he's 100 percent good to go so i kind of read that all right (laughs) he's another (laughs) warlord that we've paid off because all these guys look like they'd seen, you know, they all had the look in the eye. So he brought in about 15 or 20 guys with him. None of them were dressed properly, which is another combat indicator to me that they've dragged him out of somewhere. But again, I didn't really care or question it too much because I kind of felt almost immediately that these guys just wanted to be in it. So as we were explaining earlier for us types, how we can get addicted to it. Well, don't be fooled to think that that doesn't happen you know, on the other side. So my first impressions of these guys were these guys are a bunch of crazies that want some combat and they've had a lot and they know it. And like I said, how do I know that? It's just a feeling you get looking at guys. Off we went and, um, you know, within no time, we were getting a lot of chatter over the radio, as in they were talking about us a lot and they were manoeuvring. So it was just a matter of time. It was, you know, I wasn't scared. But I was kind of getting a little bit nervous, to be honest with you, like a healthy level of nervousness because I'm like any second now, I'm going to get crumped. I know that for 100% sure. I don't know if there's mines. In here, we're walking along the ground and then we bring the vehicles up and then we patrol through a bit and then bring the vehicles up. So it was very, you know, a caterpillar type approach, as they call it. And When there's less risk, we'd move in trail where we'd just be walking and there'd be one or two guys in the vehicles which had the machine guns and, and stuff on them, as in the heavy, the 50 cals and a Mark 19 or one of the others. And we would just keep doing this. Anyway, it was only an hour or so since we'd left, which was supposedly a secure area. We'd basically travelled bugger on. They'd moved towards us. Firefight ensued. We pretty well fought non-stop for about five days initially. You know, by this stage, I'd been in a few ticks. I'd never, ever thought I'd be part of a movie scene where it almost bloody knocked out a foreign Army's communicator to grab the phone off him to scream down it to sort of make sure that the commander knew the extremities of our position. which on this case I did, Uh, we were all down to our last magazine and, you know, you sort of had someone on the radio going, you know, if you just hold tight, boys, you know, we should be able to get to you in a few hours. And kind of like, I don't think you're getting the message. So uh, I remember that particular circumstance. We were in at about day two or three where did grab the radio off the uh, British guy and uh, deliver the message back at headquarters in no uncertain terms that, you know, you got fucking hours and your whole call sign's going to be dead. So you either get someone in here or get us out of here. It was pretty hairy. You know, all our vehicles were shot up, barely running. But God bless Land Rover, they were still running. I remember we were running clean skins back then, as in those Land Rovers had no armour on them whatsoever. The little British ones, well overloaded, not that similar to um, ours. They were just the four wheel drives, not the big six Bs. I just remember every time, you have know, walking past them near, there's just holes all through them. But like I said, they pretty well kept going. Might not have been running too well, but they kept moving forward. Um, we didn't sleep for days as in zero sleep. It was very, very, very intense. I remember at one stage we were back in a um compound. We started to get hit again and I could see the compound that was shooting at us and um I was like, mate, we need to go down there and like we, we need to form up now just attack the compound. They're just either gonna keep hitting us all the out of purpose. And the commander at the time didn't want to in his defence, there was some issue with, with the ground I was going to cross. I think it was one of those lines and had all these no-go zones. But the problem is the insurgents knew where and what we couldn't move. They'd worked it out because we were moving in such a linear fashion. We wouldn't push out to the left or right. We'd keep going in this one direction. So I think quickly they worked out they wouldn't draw us out much to some people's dismay, in particular the commanders, I said, right, I'm going to go hit that compound. And I left our compound. It was a couple hundred metres away. And um, it was on last light. They'd gone back in their compound, hadn't been firing for a little while. And I ran to that uh, compound on my own. And then about half over there, I thought, I might just have a look over my shoulder because another guy running with me. And uh, we got to that compound. and We just took that compound down on our own. Was, um, I think it was five, five guys in there. Lady and a um, couple of small kids and animals and stuff. We were strong and back to the compound. We'd come out of and then we got totally lit up by RPGs and whatnot. I kind of, honestly, my f- mindset at the time, which will sound crazy, maybe I was. We we were laughing. We looked across at each other and we laughed and sort of just ran back in between bloody hisses and uh, dust hitting up on the ground until we were back safe in our compound. But. That was a pretty hairy moment. It was a pretty stupid moment. It was a moment, again, where I've done a scan and just gone. And I, I copped a bit of flack when I got back because it wasn't heroic. It was stupid. You know, you talked about in our previous conversation, mate, when mate, we talked about, you know, suicidal shit. That's what they said. And they said, you know, do you want to fucking die out of here? Look, like, I can honestly just remember looking at it and I just shrugged my shoulders and put some more dip in my lip. And I'm not being tough or heroic about that. I'm admitting it was stupid. And I wasn't being suicidal. The point I'm making or trying to make is you know, I say this with the people when they're irrational, when they've got extreme mental health issues, you know, or, or they're, you know, when these emergency services are dealing with people that are heavily affected by drugs, you can't overlay rational thoughts with irrational mindset. So I think extended protracted combat turns your mind, well, it definitely changes you, but then to some people, you know, whether it turns it too far left or too far right, you know, you know, who knows it's an extremely complex environment in the mind but for me when i did that scan of myself which is an obvious scan that i required so i kind of subconsciously just did it and you know, i was like fuck man that was actually probably one of the more crazier things you know you're done now noting we'd already had a couple of guys shot the day before which this has happened to me three times which was kind of another combat indicator that Maybe you need to just settle down a bit or something. But the day before, we are on top of the compound roof. We got onto the compound roof to gain height, to better engage the enemy, who was absolutely annihilating us at that time from a compound across the way. We are trying to call in some cars. So the Apaches and stuff had, had already done a few waves. But we were still getting hit. And the guy next to me who had his Kevlar helmet on, but, you know, good old H had his bulletproof baseball cap on, which literally struck me down. I think ended up almost being bulletproof. I'm sitting next to someone with a baseball cap on, they've got a Kevlar helmet on, and they were shot in the head. So the guy next to me, who was their specialist communicator, he took a round directly in his head while on that roof. Because like I said, the roof was getting swept and Yeah, In those couple of seconds, I mean, what's running through your mind, I'm kind of like thinking, you know, fuck. I'm trying to find targets through my sights as fast as I can, but when bullets are actually like hitting beside you and then they hit the guy next to you, kind of, I don't know what it is, whether it's a lot of focus or concentration. I can't even describe it. What's required to sort of maintain, you to just be cool, for want of a better word, and to keep...
1: Discipline of focus.
0: Yeah, and to just keep trying to find where that firing's coming from or if you know, to keep trying to put the most accurate, effective fire you can on that position until that guy's dead or he's going to kill you we had about a two to three hundred meter gap in between these two compound roofs firing each other so it wasn't that far away but you can imagine but anyway when he got hit in the head you know his head's <laughs> next flung back and i saw blood coming down the side of his face and i just going fuck yeah he's gone didn't really think about it or check in because was a headshot and plus i'll remember at this time it sounds a bit jack but I'll, i was getting wailed so i've screamed out to get me off the roof and so I could throw him down. Sorry, what happened a split second before that? I've looked over to my left. So we had one of their ladders. The boys who have operated overseas know what I'm talking about. They have these dodgy ladders inside these compounds for them to climb one of their roof. They'd drive fruit on there and you know whatnot. And when it was the insurgents were there, they'd use it obviously to get on their roof to, you know, spot as we call it to see anyone coming or to look around their compound. Well, the ladder was gone and the roof was pretty high, and I had all my kit on, like, you know, I could jump, but the chance of sprain or breaking an ankle, 70 80%. So because the little struts at the top of the ladder weren't sticking above the roof, you know, I knew it wasn't there. It had been shifted, so I'm, like, screaming out, you know, where's that fucking ladder? You can imagine it. And um, someone had grabbed it to climb on the other roof where the other boys were shooting. I found it afterwards, which is kind of obvious, and, yeah, it's no problem, but I need the ladder now. While this is happening, still getting shot at, still trying to apply some effective fire down the guy next to me, I've realized he's not dead. So he's moving around. And what had happened, and uh, I've got a picture of this, what had happened was the bullet had hit because there was a single strike in his helmet. It had hit just on the side of the screw on the side of his helmet. And what that had done was it pushed in that nanosecond, it pushed at splintex that the steel of the screw and the um, little hook on the other side threw into the side of his head and ear. But the bullet had done a 90-degree turn and had lodged inside the Kevlar, all which was visible. So now, yeah, basically the situation is no change except there's two guys to get off the roof and we're getting peppered. So he was a bit dusted initially because I think it concussed him a bit as well. But he was now coherent and, you know, obviously probably the shock of getting shot in the head maybe as well. Might have had something to do with it, I don't know. But uh, the short of it is we got off that roof, both of us alive, and uh, lived another day. But that was a day or two prior to me doing that other stupid stupid shit that
1: I explained a minute ago. But. but that all kinds of feeds into it, experiencing that intensity and that relentlessness and it chips away at you. So you're more likely, more at risk of making those kind of stupid calls.
0: Yeah, you're tired. You yeah, know, certain things are working for you and certain things are working against you, I
1: guess. You say in five days, I'm trying to imagine your rations, your sleep deprived how hungry are you? How dehydrated are you? I, I know you would have gone out with some, you know, supplies, but- Yeah, I mean, we,
0: we definitely had some stuff in the cars. And you had enough to get by, but yeah, I mean, I was, you're constantly hungry. I guess the other thing with hunger and food is when you, if anyone recalls, because it's not about combat, what I'm about to explain. If anybody, any listener, you know, has been in like a car accident or has been in any sort of, you know, associated trauma or heavily injured themselves or whatever, how much do you feel like eating at that point in time? Zero. That's very true. So here's the trick. (laughs) You really, really need to. And again, only experience will give you this because you don't eat, you know? So you've got to force yourself to have some sustenance so that you can continue to be combat effective, but it's not natural. What's natural because the adrenaline and all the other chemicals, which are getting flooded into your body, well, what they do is say, don't eat. Okay. It's in short of it. I don't know scientific terms, but certainly you're not hungry. And it's only if when you settle down and you rest for you know a couple of hours, you're like, oh my god, I'm starving! Like it's some you know sudden epiphany that just occurred, but you've been starving the whole time. And water's much the same. Like you'll keep drinking your water, but you know we were running low and ran out of water a few times. And then they'd get sucked up to us again, you know. But yeah, you 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 know as the saying goes, and most of this is a bit worth what a chem light is or a siloom stick. So we have a saying, you know, you're pissing siloom which is basically you know a fluorescent greeny yellow mixture of whatever's left in your body now when you combine this with i would also smoke because i uh, felt that helped calm me or keep me calm or something to do probably a combination of everything this is extremely common in combat like just about every guy in the wars and i know most guys as soon as they touch their foot in afghanistan (laughs) would like start smoking it used to be our joke because they'd be the guys who would be totally anti-smokers back on base I'd also be dipping, so I'd have a uh, lip full of dip. And then I'd take um, a Sudafed, which had, you know, if you had, you know, four four or so of them, had enough uh, ephedrine in it to give you a little bit of, you know, kick. So you do that, coffee. So basically you're taking any stimulant you can get your hand on to keep awake, to have some level of alertness and to just keep moving. But, you know, when you're taking those things on a extremely tired body, you know, a mind which is, you know, it's had that many different chemicals getting spurted into it to cause different reactions, you're basically running on empty. And it takes, you know, I don't know how long, it takes a long time to recover from that. You know, I, mean, I mean, people would argue you never do, but the point I'm making in you know, those weeks or a few weeks later, you know, you, you can't sleep either. So that's the other clincher, you know. Sleep deprivation really affects you heavily and you're not sleeping. I mean, how do you sleep? You know, you're just going to get shot at again in a minute, so you might as well just stay awake and be ready to shoot back
1: someone like me can go through something like that for a number of hours per se. I don't mean combat, but this, that you're deprived for other reasons. And then you can bounce back from that pretty easily with a good night's sleep and a good feed up later. Whereas I can imagine the recovery time is a lot more severe after a sustained period like that for you. And a lot of the time you won't even get that solid recovery time. You might get one evening, but bathing in the German baths at the, you know, base and having some R&R, but that's going to be maybe, I don't know, you might be on and off the next day or the mm. day after that, you don't get enough time to really recover. So you're continually depleting yourselves over and over again to the point of exhaustion.
0: Yeah, no, again, you're dead right, mate. And, um, you know, there, there is no, this is the thing, there is no respite. You know, even when you go back and, you know, I, I, you know, I've got to admit, you know, especially in the later days in 66 and other task forces that I was in, and, and you know, the listeners should know this, you know, we, some of our living conditions were quite good. You know, we can't hide that. They were quite good, you know, in regards to, you know, you had basically got a normal bedroom with a bed and air conditioning. So, you know, you're like, oh, that's a bit excessive or whatever. But even coming back to that whenever, if you're lucky enough to get back there or, you know, have a few nights in it. Now I look back because initially when all that started happening, you know, as opposed to us all just lying around the one room on bunks, I really began to understand how essential a sleep and rest is. And noting what you just said and what I just said, that you're not actually ever sleeping or resting. You know, if you understand sleep cycles, your actual rest is when you get into your deep sleep cycle. Well, we don't. Okay. And again, that's the science. And when I say we, it's a, it's a general statement that when you're at those levels of, um, of hypertension that you know, your body can't, it won't allow itself to go into that because you're at hypertension. It just doesn't happen. So yeah, I mean, all, all of that just increases, incrementally increases your fatigue you know, until, hence the name, you're chronically fatigued. There's nothing you can do. You know, you need deep recharge cycle. You know, the battery needs to be taken off the phone and put in, you know, the glove box and left there for a year. You know, and that's when you get to that stage.
1: Tune in tomorrow to number 54, H, volume 5, to hear about H's return home from 2008, Afghanistan. And stories from his 2010 deployment. Here's a clip from the next episode.
0: It's not easy standing there listening, guys, get shot, listening to people trying to get a black hawk to land to evacuate people that are dying. That's not easy.
1: Find us on Instagram and Facebook at Life on the Line Podcast and on Twitter at LOTL Pod. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com and our email is podcast at lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Workhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget.